is the climax of the Gospel of Mark. This is the week when the nails are driven, when the thorns are set, when the spear is poked. This is the event, not only of the gospel, but of human history, when God himself is put to death. And it's appropriate that we be emotional about it, because this, we're going to see, is what Jesus had to do in order to make atonement for your sin and for mine. The fundamental problem of being a human being is that we are fallen. Since Adam and Eve and the garden, we are fallen. And, and God remains holy and just. And as a holy and just God, he must condemn us for our sin, and he must ensure that we pay the penalty for our sin, which according to the scriptures is death. Sin against God is treason. It is high treason. It is a capital offense. And so God must put us to death. But on the other hand, he loves us so deeply that he cannot bear the thought of doing what his justice requires that he do. And so some way, somehow, has to be found for God's justice to be vindicated and the scales of justice to be balanced, and yet also for God to demonstrate his love to us. How can he do both? Well, a way was found. Sin's penalty will be paid. In the only way it can be paid, which is with blood and death. And yet, love will be demonstrated because God himself will come down. He will become incarnate in Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity will take on flesh, take on a human nature, be born of a virgin, born the seed of the woman in fulfillment of prophecy and will die taking the penalty for sin on himself, and in so doing, defeat both sin and the temporal consequences of sin, which is death, as well as the eternal and spiritual consequences of sin, which is death and separation from God in hell. And he will take it all on himself. And in so doing, he will demonstrate the most fantastic, deep, rich, loving love that has ever been. And he will also demonstrate his perfect justice in that sin does not go unpunished. But instead, the one who knew no sin will become sin for us, that we, as Paul said, might become the righteousness of God in him. And it is a fantastic trade that we make. We trade in our old, busted, screwed-up nature, and along with all of its sin and fallenness and flaws and dirt and filth, we trade all of that in for the righteousness of Christ. And the way we are able to do so is through the blood of the Lamb, which is shed on a particular Friday 2,000 years ago. 
And in this event, Jesus is going to show in, very, in a very clear way that he is what Mark says he is in the very first verse of his gospel. You remember all the way back? Beginning of the good news about Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you've got your Bible, Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Friday morning, the Sanhedrin has successfully conspired and maneuvered Pilate into condemning Jesus to death, even though they've had to manipulate Jewish law with reference to the calendar. In order to do that, they'd say, well, we won't use the Jewish calendar, which requires a trial on two separate days, even though we've tried him on the same night. Uh, We're going to use Roman law uh, for the condemnation of a Jewish crime of blasphemy. We're going to get Jesus one way or another. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to accuse him of treason before Pilate and demand that he be crucified. And when Pilate offers to give us Barabbas, and then also later says, what shall I do with Jesus, which is another offer. Maybe I can release Jesus to you also. They say, take him out and crucify him. And Pilate, because he is weak, because his political position is weak, decides that in the name of political expediency and his own ambition and career is going to do an injustice and turn over an innocent man to die. He has Jesus flogged, which was a separate punishment from crucifixion, but often done beforehand. And a lot of times, if you went through a Roman flogging, there was no limit on the number of stripes they could lay on you. And a lot of times people died even from that, from blood loss, having the meat ripped away from their body, which is graphic and gross, and I'm sorry if that offends you, but that's what happened. And after all of that, the soldiers that are in charge of the beating take Jesus into the, into the palace, which is the governor's residence, the praetorium, which is attached to the temple courtyard. Take him off in here, and they, they, they think, you know what, we're going to have a little fun with this dude, this Jewish hillbilly who thinks he's the king. 
And so they don't just get the standard execution squad of four guys. They get the whole company of soldiers, about two or 300 of them, that would have been attached to this palace to protect the governor. They get them all gathered in there. And they say, hey, let's have, you know, this guy thinks he's a king. Let's have some fun and have a coronation. And so, Mark tells us, they put a purple robe on him. Purple was the color of royalty. And then they take, a, they take some thorns, and they decide they're going to make him a crown. He thinks he's king. We'll make him a crown. So they put some thorns together in a ring, and it says they set it on his head. Uh, I don't imagine they just sort of dropped it on. They jam this thing on his head. And then they take a, a, a reed for a staff, a scepter, and they beat him with it. And they call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Just like you would do with Caesar. When Caesar would walk by, you would salute and you would say, Ave Caesar! Hail Caesar. They're doing that with Jesus. Hail to the king of the Jews. And again and again, they strike him on the head, probably with his scepter. Here, let me see that scepter a minute. Whack. Let me lay down some law for you. Boom. And they spit on him. And they get down on their knees and they pay him honor like a king. When a king came in, you bowed before him like this. That's what they do with Jesus. Not in honor, but in mockery and in spite. Because they weren't any bigger fans of the Jewish people than Pilate was. And they get down and give tribute. And after this goes on, by the way, for a couple of hours. Jesus is condemned by Pilate somewhere around 6 in the morning. We don't know how long the scourging takes. But we do know that it takes a couple of hours for all of this, all the festivities to wind down. Because it's about 9 in the morning when he goes out to be crucified. And the four-man execution squad takes Jesus, and they give him his own, what's called the patibulum, which is the cross beam on a cross. And they give it to him to carry across his bleeding back after he has been beat around the head and shoulders with a stick, after he has been crowned with thorns, after he has gone through Roman scourging, after they have spit on him, called and said, Hail, King of the Jews! make you carry your own instrument of execution and death. And Jesus, because his body at this point is weakened from a combination probably of blood loss, beating, and lack of sleep, can't carry it anymore. And they, the Romans, because they were the imperial rulers and had the ability to do this, just grabbed some random fellow out of the crowd 
who happens to be a pilgrim who is there for the feast. He's from Cyrene, which is North Africa, uh, around uh, modern-day Libya, Tunisia, that area. And he's a, he's a Jewish man who's there for the feast, and they grab him and they say, here, you carry his cross. And Mark mentions, his, mentions him as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Uh, Alexander and Rufus are probably people who are well-known Christians within the Roman church that, that Mark is writing to. And so he mentions them. He's the only one who mentions them, by the way. He says, it was this guy's father who carried Jesus' cross. And they get to the place called Golgotha, which is the place of the skull. It's probably just a little rounded, humped-up hill. It's the execution spot along the road outside of Jerusalem. Because according to Jewish law, you couldn't put anybody to death inside the walls because the city was holy. Uh, And they treated the city like the like according to the regulations with reference to the tabernacle in the, in under when the tabernacle still stood if you had anything unclean that had to happen uh including going to the bathroom you had to do it outside the camp you had to burn your garbage outside the camp you had to uh use your bathroom outside the camp you had to do everything that was unclean outside the camp and executions were done outside the camp and so they have to take Jesus outside the walls of the city, and they've got this little humped-up hill that they call Skull Hill, essentially. This is where we kill people. This is the hanging oak outside of town. And there have probably been hundreds, possibly even thousands of Jews killed in this same spot over the centuries of Roman rule. In fact, uh, when the temple falls in 70 A.D., all of the hillsides around Jerusalem are going to be decorated with crosses. About a million Jews were killed during the Jewish revolt uh, in those years. And when they crucify him, they're going to give him, they're going to try to give him a drink of wine mixed with myrrh, which uh, I'm not exactly sure how, how it all works, but it produces a sedative effect so that it dulls the pain that you're about to experience. But Jesus, interestingly, doesn't take it. Now imagine what you have just been through. You've been whipped, you've been beat, you've been mocked, you've been spit on, you've been crowned with thorns. You're too weak to carry your own cross. And along comes someone with a shot of Demerol, Are you taking that? I'm taking that. Jesus doesn't take it. He'd rather have all of his faculties and go through all of this than not. Story goes on. Verse 24. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each one get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by 
hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him, and at the sixth hour darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And one man ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Now, when it comes to the crucifixion itself, Mark is pretty sparing with the details. He doesn't need to go into a lot of elaboration because Mark's readers would have seen dozens, hundreds of people killed this way. And so he just says, and they crucified him. But this is what happened. When you got to the death spot, they would lay you down on the cross beam, and they would probably, or at least often, they would tie your upper arms, and then they would drive a nail iron-cut nail, right through the radial nerve here on your arm, right below, right in between your radius and ulna on your lower, uh, lower arm, and right below your wrist bone so that it will bear the weight of your body. It's excruciating. And then they raise that crossbeam up with your arms attached and attach it to the upright, which is already mounted in the ground. And then when they've got you good and stretched, they pound a nail through your feet. And you have a peg between your legs that enables you to push, and I mean to sit, because in order to breathe, what happens when they do this to you is that your shoulders dislocate and your chest starts to compress. And your pericardium around your heart begins to fill with fluid, and so do your lungs. And so in order to breathe, you have to push on that nail in your feet. And open up your chest so you can breathe, while your back, which has been whipped raw, is rubbing up and down that post. It normally takes two or three days 
for someone killed this way to die. Because it normally takes them that long for their body to totally give out. It is the most horrific, torturous, nasty, horrible death. There are not enough adjectives to describe this. What dying this way is like. And while he is bleeding and suffering and dying, the mocking is ongoing. They are shaking their heads in derision and they're saying, if you can rebuild the temple, big guy, how about come on down from the cross and show us what you can do? Then we'll believe in you. Can you just hear the scorn in that? And the Sanhedrin is all saying, they, they conspired and lied and cheated the Jewish legal process, legal process that they were in charge of enforcing. They bend it all around. And then they say, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. And what they do not realize as they're saying that is that in order to save others, he cannot save himself. Can Jesus save himself? You bet. Those 12 legions of angels are still on call. And by the way, what do you think God thought about this? Watching his son mocked and beaten and scorned and whipped and killed this way. And the very ones who are standing there mocking, the very ones whose hands drove the nails, the very ones whose hand held the whip, the very ones who put him to death are the ones for whom he is hanging on that tree. And about noon, there's a solar eclipse and that blankets the whole area in darkness. And that night, although Mark doesn't tell us this, uh, there's the, the astronomical phenomenon called the blood moon that rises. And this event, he does mention the eclipse because it's in fulfillment of the prophet Joel who said, the sky will turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Peter quotes that prophecy in Acts and says, you remember when this happened on the day that Jesus died. It was in fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And what we're about to do, which they then do, of speaking in tongues, is also in fulfillment of the prophet Joel. The day of the Lord has come. And the sad thing is, is that no one recognizes that this is the Son of God except for the centurion attached to the execution squad. About three o'clock, Jesus cries out these words from Psalm 22, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus' death is happening in fulfillment of this messianic psalm, Psalm 22, which describes in vivid detail everything that will happen to Jesus like 800 years prior to the, actually more like 1,000 years prior to the crucifixion. Before crucifixion is even invented, David writes a psalm which prophesies in detail what is going to happen to Jesus. It even mentions that they divided my clothing among them by casting lots, which the soldiers did. All my bones are out of joint, just like Jesus. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that is what is happening. God, in a way that I do not fully understand, and for the one and only time that it ever occurs, there is a separation between the Father and the Son where there has been no separation ever before or since. In the perfect relationship of the Trinity, there is always a union of love. But here at the cross for a while, there is a separation between the Son and the Father as the sins of the world are poured out on Jesus and Jesus bears our sin, yours and mine, and not ours only, but the sins of the entire world are put on Jesus and judged. And Jesus cries out, forsaken. And even in this, even as he is fulfilling in his death prophecy of what would happen to Messiah, somebody is there who thinks that Jesus is calling on Elijah to come save him. And so he gets him some cheap wine and sticks it on a sponge and on a stick and says, here, let's get the guy a drink and then let's see if, let's wait and see if Elijah comes. This will be great. I wonder if Elijah will show. Now let me tell you this, okay? A criminal execution is a necessary but terrible thing sometimes. As a society... We are following God's law when we execute the worst of murderers and criminals, okay? But it's not something to celebrate, and you definitely don't have a party when it happens. Because a man is dying. What kind of a person is able to mock even a terrible criminal? while he stands bleeding and dying before him. And yet that's what happens. And Jesus eventually gives up his spirit at about 3 p.m. He's been on the cross about six hours. And when he dies, Mark is so guarded about this in a typical Jewish way, he says, now the temple of the, the curtain in the temple, he means the veil between the Holy of Holies and the holy place. The Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the high priest could go once a year on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. And it says, now the curtain was torn from top to bottom. 
And it's a typically Jewish way of saying that God tore it without mentioning his name because Jews didn't do that. But he mentions that it was torn from top to bottom. In other words, who's tall enough to do that? Well, God is. And he rips it in half. And how do we know that this happened? Because there were priests, we find out from the book of Acts, who believed in Jesus after this. They saw this happen. And it happens right at the time, Jesus dies, by the way, right at the time of the evening sacrifice, which was done every day. There was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. And Jesus' death parallels that. And the curtain rips at that same moment at the time of the evening sacrifice. Why? Because God is showing his people that there is no longer a need for sacrifice because the final sacrifice has just been made. The perfect lamb has just died. And the, blood, and the blood of this lamb will cover all sins for all people for all time. And so there is no longer a need for a dividing wall or a separation between us and God. Why? Because the mediator is here. The perfect high priest is here. And through his blood, we are able to enter into the very presence of God. And so God rips the curtain that he had told him to build. And the centurion that's watching all this says, surely this man was the son of God. And surely he was and is. We'll find out next week the story doesn't end here. But it goes on. Verse 42, it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. It's Friday afternoon, in other words. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the, of the council, was, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned this from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. The Sabbath is coming in just hours. It's Friday on a major feast week. The Sabbath is coming. This is the, the most holy day of the feast that's about to start. And Jewish law requires that all bodies which are hung on a tree be taken down before sunset. Uh, But yet, crucifixion normally took two to three days to kill someone. And so Mark doesn't tell us this, but Jesus has already died, but they've they've got the two thieves that are with him. And they break their legs. Why? Because if your legs are broken, you can't push anymore. To breathe. And then death comes within minutes. And the Sabbath is coming. 
And Joseph, I mean, Jesus is dead at three, so Joseph goes to ask for the body. Now, this is a huge risk that he is taking. Uh, When it says that he was a prominent member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin. He was part of the group that was responsible for Jesus being put to death. Now, here's what we don't know. We don't know if he was present at the time when Jesus was condemned to death or not, or if they just got just the members that they thought would agree with them, which is a possibility, or if he was there and didn't speak up even though he should have in Jesus' defense. But by going to ask Pilate for the body, all pretense is gone because Here's the thing, he's not a family member. You would expect a family member to ask for the body of their dead relative. He's not a family member. And what's the charge against Jesus? Treason. People who are killed for treason aren't normally allowed to be buried. Normally they leave their bodies exposed so that you can... Be an example to all passerby. This is what happens if you commit treason against Rome. And so they left you for the birds. And when you go and ask for someone's body as a non-relative, what you are saying is, I'm identified and with and a follower of this man whom you just put to death for treason, which makes you a what? A traitor. The penalty for which is crucifixion. And on top of that, he's a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, the body who are responsible for having condemned Jesus to death and handing him over to Pilate in the first place. I wonder if that led to an uncomfortable Sanhedrin meeting next. Probably, I'm guessing, right? You think that he is putting his position and leadership at risk by doing this? Yes, he's putting his very life at risk. By going to Pilate, and yet he goes. And on top of that, it's he's a Jew, and this is a major feast day, and he's going to be handling a dead body, which is going to make him ceremonially unclean and unable to participate in the feast, which is a social cost as well as a religious one. And yet he goes. And Pilate gives him the body. And Mark doesn't give us this detail either. Mark is such a condensed, tight account. But it's Joseph's own tomb that he lays him in. In other words, as if to put an exclamation point on the fact that I'm going to treat this guy as a member of my own family. Because it's his own family tomb that Jesus is laid in. And there are a couple of women who are there watching. And notice, by the way, ladies, hear this, okay? When all of the men had had become the spineless wonder, you know, they walk and yet without a backbone, no one knows how this works, okay? When all of the men are running away, who are there? The women. The ladies have more courage than the men. And so there are some of them who are there at the crucifixion. There are some of them who are there at the burial. 
and they're going to attend to Jesus just like they cared for him all the way through his life and paid for his expenses and met his needs. They're there at the, at the death. They're there crucifixion. And they're to be commended on that. It's a tremendous thing. So, what are we to make of the crucifixion of the Savior? I began this series back in January, if you'll remember, uh, with a short video that interspersed visual depictions of events in the gospel with little snippets of Scripture that says, and they were amazed, and they were amazed, and they were amazed, and they were amazed. And then it ends with this question, are you amazed? We've been eight months at this. Are you amazed, Jesus? Because I am. Are you in shock that a God who is holy, who has every right because of his holiness, to destroy us for our rebellion, not only does not exercise that right, but sends his own son to be crucified and killed by the very people for whom he dies. Are you amazed that the God who permits all of that not only saves us, but welcomes us into his own family as adopted sons and daughters? And gives us the many rooms that Jesus mentions. Remember that in John? I'm going to get your room ready. Are you amazed by the fact that the God whom you sinned and rebelled and committed treason against, whom we killed for treason, wants to get us a room ready at his house? And have a party when we get there. Are you amazed that the God who flung the stars into existence by the word of his mouth. When he was mocked about coming off the cross does not come off the cross. until the sins of the mockers are paid with his death. Are you amazed by the fact that he who had never sinned became sin, that we might have his righteousness? I hope you're amazed. Because this is the most amazing, awe-inspiring fantastic thing that has ever happened or ever will happen in all the world. And so if you're not amazed by this, something is wrong with you. You need to check your pulse and make sure you're alive because this is amazing. And it ought to inspire two two things in us, just two. Okay? Number one, it ought to inspire in us an intense, lifelong commitment to following Jesus. Because a God who is this amazing is the only one worthy of the name. And besides that, 
He's the only one who is worth giving your life for. And so if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and said, Father, I am a sinner who deserves every bit of wrath that you have stored up for me and my sin. I deserve it all. But because you love me, I receive by faith in your son, in his death on the cross for my sin, I receive your love and your forgiveness and your new life and adoption into your family as one of your kids, brothers with Jesus and sisters with Jesus. What kind of a God does that? What kind of a person does that? No one but God does that. And because of that, Father, I offer you my life. I offer you everything I have. My money, my talents, my identity, my social standing. Everything I got is yours. I give it to you because you have given it to me, and it's all I've got. And then, number two, it ought to inspire in us an absolute hatred of our sin. Because this is what has to be done to deal with it. A lot of times we tend to think of our sin as just this little kind of, you know, not very big deal kind of stuff. Because we all are prone to it and we all do it. And so it's a little white lie. It's not a big black lie. It's a little compromise, not a big one. It's a small area of sin. And after all, we're all flawed and we're all human and we all do this stuff. And, you know, it's just really not that big of a deal. No! Holy God has to die in this way. For your sin to be covered and for my sin to be covered. And if that doesn't make you at least a little bit emotional, something is wrong. I can't read this without tearing up. They took him out of the city like a criminal and they pounded nails in his arms and in his feet, and they speared him, and they crowned him with thorns, and they beat him, and flogged him, and made fun of him until his last breath. And he took it for me and for you, because he loves us. And so sin is a very big deal. And though it is covered, and though God loves us, it is a slap in the face to treat it as if it is no big thing because we all do it. It ought to break our hearts because it took his life. Let's pray.